This is Dr. Shaman Sovendal with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendal with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Sitting next to my lovely wife, Stephanie Sovendal. Hello, everyone. We have a special guest today as well, and I'll introduce her in a second. But we apologize for a bit of delay. We are getting our butts kicked by COVID and having childcare issues. So <laughs> that delays our podcast a bit. You might hear the kids in the background. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll be on the podcast today. We have a gaggle of them running around. So previously we have covered COVID and we keep coming back to it because how can we not? Uh, we did that breathe in, breathe out episode where we had uh, Melissa on to talk about how we manage people in EMS and in the ER. And then we did um, episode seven when we had Reed Caldwell on with us from New York. Um, today we're going to go back and hit COVID once again. So we hope you're ready for it. We had some um, listeners write questions about the vaccine. So this talk today is going to be specifically about the vaccine and because we're, you know, I'm excited about the vaccine and I already got my vaccine on Tuesday. So I was super excited about that, but we decided to bring a special guest in and it's an expert in this stuff. Absolutely. We're super excited. So and today we have, oh, sorry, Steph. I was just going to say, hopefully this could be one of our last COVID talks. Yeah. Hope so. <laughs> so today I want to introduce Dr. Amy Meditz. Dr. Amy Meditz works with me at the hospital in Boulder, but she is a badass uh, infectious disease doctor. So I'm going to read a little blurb about her, just introduce her, and then we'll get her on the line here. Dr. Amy Meditz is board certified in infectious disease and internal medicine. After completing her undergraduate degree at Austin College in Sherman, Texas, Dr. Meditz received her medical degree in internal medicine training from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. She subsequently completed her fellowship in infectious disease at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in 2006. Before joining the Beacon Center for Infectious Disease in 2013, Dr. Meditz was an assistant professor at the University of Colorado. Her original scientific investigations have led to more than 30 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Additionally, she received awards in 2012 and 2013, recognizing her outstanding leadership skills and excellent in patient care and research. More recently, she was the co-recipient of the 2015 Astute Clinician Award from the Colorado Public Health and Environment Department. Dr. Meditz manages the full spectrum of inpatient and outpatient infectious disease problems. She lives in the Boulder area with her husband. She enjoys cooking, hiking, riding horses, running, and road biking. Hi, this is Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, sure. You sound uh, just just minimally qualified to talk on this today, yeah. huh? <laughs> wow. Well, I, I appreciate that endorsement. And, um, you know, for me, um, the early responders are such an important group to me. Um, I trained at, maybe some of you out there uh, recognize Southwestern Medical School as associated with Parkland Hospital, one of the biggest trauma centers in the United States. Um, and when I trained, um, the ER residency was in its, its beginning. So the internal medicine doctors ran the ER, which Shannon may gasp <laughs> with the thought of this. It was a probably um, well-oiled machine then. It probably was well-oiled. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a lot of positive experiences early in my career. I continue to have them. Um, hopefully Shannon can endorse that I am in the ER quite a bit um, and seeing what 
uh, EMS is doing to make our community safe. So I greatly appreciate what people are doing out there. Yeah, and everybody out there needs to know that it is awesome for me to have an infectious disease specialist on speed dial on my phone. So whenever EMS folks ask me a question, then I just speed dial Amy and ask her the question and then relate back to them. So it's awesome. Thanks for all the help. You have helped us immensely in our um, system here in Boulder. So let's uh, jump into this where we're at with COVID just briefly. Um, talking about numbers of total cases, there's 75 million total cases of COVID. There's 1.6 million deaths Currently, the U.S. is at 312,000 deaths today, and that's honestly going up. And that just is a, a crazy number, like if you got, stop and think about it. I think, Amy, yeah. you had a good analogy for that, right, for those yeah. daily deaths? So for in the United States, the daily death is equal to 15 747s crashing daily. And I think if you hadn't thought this before, I mean, this is, I mean, it's the biggest public health threat of our lifetime. Yeah, it's um, crazy. So that, that really is the setting for the critical nature of developing a vaccine uh, to prevent and eliminate uh, the SARS-CoV-2 as, a, as a, the pandemic currently plaguing our world. Yeah. I like to put it in perspective like that. When you put it as 747s crashing, I mean, we, you know, we obviously have all these events in our life where terrorist attacks happen or a plane crash happens. And that's like a one off event almost. And this is, we're talking this every day. This is happening. These 747s equivalently are crashing and it is, it's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I normally have to take an Advan every time I fly because one plane crash happens a year. How many Advan do I need now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be way worse. So, Amy, I thought we could start by just, you know, obviously we want to get to the punchline here, which is vaccines. Um, do you want to just run us through an overview of, of vaccines and what we're talking about here? So, I think that the question that you're asking me is, I mean, what are we looking at right now? I mean, we currently what's been developed and in the news are two novel vaccines that are using a technology called messenger RNA, which is um, the basically reading re, what, what our body reads to make proteins. Um, prior vaccines and uh, that are out have been um, basically live attenuated viruses, inactivated viruses, proteins. Um, and in some of these, uh, for example, tetanus has, has actually never been in a clinical trial. Uh, we're using this all the time. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so that's just kind of a background of this technology. So I want to get into this um, mRNA vaccine more, obviously. And you, you mentioned it when you said it. There's, you know, there, there's currently about a dozen um, vaccines in late stage trials right now, but there's only two that are the messenger RNA. And those two are the two that are out right now, the two that are kind of being released to the public right now. And so that the, what you hear in the news is one's from Pfizer and one's from Moderna and Pfizer's, you know, this huge pharmaceutical company that's been around for forever. It's a fortune 500 company and Moderna is a new company, 10 years old, really just focusing on this me messenger RNA technology. And we'll get into that a little more in a minute, but why don't you just take us through the messenger RNA uh, vaccine and how it works and all of that. So I consider messenger RNA vaccines a true scientific advancement 
And people are very worried about, because it seemingly is a new technology, but it's actually not that new. Um, scientists have been working on this technology um, for over 20 years. Um, it was conceived in the 19, late 1990s. And as we already alluded to, it doesn't contain any alive, attenuated, or inactivated virus. It's synthetic messenger RNA. And what this does is it encodes a specific protein when it's delivered to our cells. Um, then this protein that our bodies make using some mach machinery in our cells presents itself to our immune system, and that's how we develop this response. Interestingly, this nucleic acid or messenger RNA is very fragile. And that was kind of one of the hiccups that scientists had initially, that they, it was hard to deliver it to the cells because once it got delivered to the cells, like it would be broken up before it got there. Um, so this new development is that these the messenger RNA can be encased in kind of these fat globules almost. They're called lipid nanoparticles. And that's how they deliver it to the cell so that nanoparticle can bump against our cell walls, which are also made of similar kind of fat-laden materials and kind of fuse with that and actually deliver the messenger RNA to that cell. Yeah, it's, 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 so, it's super cool. It's super cool technology. Really fascinating. It's, uh, I, it's just, you know, as a scientist or attempt at being a scientist in my earlier career, I got to present, you know, some interesting information at, at presentations. Uh, and this is just like, it's just like, I just, you want to like, your brain is just exploding. This is so amazing. Um, I, I really liken it to how many people felt when the initial therapies for HIV came out. We were like, oh my gosh, this is just, it's a pivotal changer. moment. Yeah, it's, it's game really, changer. yeah, it's a game changer. This is totally a, a, an amazing technology. And if you think about how our bodies normally work, we have, you know, our whole DNA structure that is a roadmap for how our body functions. And essentially all the cells that we have today are new cells. They're new cells from when we were born. So we're not that same person, you know, both figuratively and physically when we were little kids. And that's because we have this, this roadmap, this DNA that gives instructions. The DNA is taken out of the nucleus of the cell and you make a messenger RNA with it. And that directs your cell to make all these different proteins and things that you need in your body. And what we're doing with this vaccine is we're essentially saying, let's use that machinery to make these proteins. And it's, it's truly amazing. It's truly amazing work in that the people who came up with this, like they, they potentially win the Nobel prize for this. Like that's my thought of this. It's so amazing that they figured this out. Yes, that I wholeheartedly agree with that, that this is definitely going down the road of scientific awards. But what I want to try to do is just explain in the context of the actual two vaccines, one that already has an EUA and one that is likely to have an EUA shortly, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna uh, products, are using messenger RNA to encode for the spike protein. The spike protein is what the coronavirus uses to bind to the ACE receptor, which is just a receptor on our cells and allows them uh, to infect our cells. And it's a perfect area for us 
to develop an immune response. So this is these this this messenger RNA with the the lipid particles are delivered to the inside of our cells. The machinery, just called the ribosome, the name of it is important, is able to translate this into protein, and then that is displayed on the top of or on the outside of our cells. And then multiple branches of our immune system are able to respond. So we're not only just making antibodies, we're really hopeful that, and actually the phase two trial showed this, that the cells that actually give us longer immunity, which are, which are called memory T cells, makes sense, they're called memory, will give us longer lasting immunity to the coronavirus. So this, and I want to point out one thing, there's a lot of things out there about, can this get into our DNA? Um, so our DNA is in the nucleus of our cell, and this messenger RNA is way too fragile. It cannot enter that. It's getting nowhere near our DNA. It cannot alter our DNA. This is not something to be worried about. Yeah, and I think, the, again, thinking to what I was saying about the body regenerating itself. So you have the nucleus cell with the DNA, and then you have the ribosomes in the in the, the cell outside of the nucleus. And those are, are designed to make anything. They, they can make all kinds of things. You think about it as a factory that just is waiting to produce something. And as soon as it gets the instructions, it starts to produce that, those things. And so when we give this messenger RNA through our vaccine, then those ribosomes start making the, the spike protein. And, and really what we're trying to do is get an army together inside our immune system to specifically go kill this virus. And that's also the, the, the army is waiting in ready. Once we have this vaccine, if we're exposed to the virus, then it can quickly, you know, go attack the particles that need to be attacked. Yeah, that, that's a perfect way to describe it. And Amy, what I'm hearing here too, um, just one of the things that I've heard people vocalize, I know I've had thoughts on it too, is, hey, this vaccine is being produced so quickly, how can it be safe? But what I've kind of now been hearing is that this has actually been in the works, this type of vaccine has been in the works for almost, or just over 20 years, I believe you said. That's with that, with that like 20 years, were they just essentially waiting for, you know, this COVID type um, illness to come about to just kind of plug and play, if you will? How I would like to respond to that is, yes, actually, we have been trying to develop uh, vaccines using this technology. But one of the critical things that has to be in place is you have to have a high level of infection present to study a vaccine. Okay. So just let that sink in for a second. Like, so the, pre the prevalence of the disease has to be high enough where you can have enough people to say, yes, I can study 15,000, 20,000 people and say, yes, the, pl the placebo was inferior to giving somebody a vaccine or it was efficacious enough, um, which the current cutoff is 50% set by the FDA. So you that's like the first piece. The other piece here is prior to the pandemic, I mean, there was collaboration, but we put collaboration to the exponent of 100. Collaboration just came out of the woodwork. And this is a huge uh, advancement for science. People were sharing information. We went from having the genetic makeup of the coronavirus to vaccine in a matter of weeks. Um, this, was, this was an unprecedented process in science. And we and really retrospectively, what we were doing kind of sucked. 
um, like this process is so much better. Yeah. Um, so basically we were taking the collaborative science, the, the existing messenger RNA technology that had been developed and a bunch of money, um, which came from a lot of sources. Um, and that's how we were able to get to this vaccine so quickly. And we weren't skipping any steps. We were just making this a better process than it used to be. Um, and I think that, I think you guys also want to talk a little bit about, you know, really these scientists that did develop this messenger RNA, because I think it's a really fascinating story. Yeah. I mean, these, like I said earlier, I, I do think that they're, this is so amazing. It's on the level of Nobel Prize. And it's just because of the, the, obviously the number of people that this could positively affect. But if you look back at this and, and the history of us getting to this mRNA, it didn't just come out of the woodwork. Like you said, they've been working on it for 20 years. And I, and I did a little research just because I found it super interesting. And so I went to try to figure out who did this. And I'm going to butcher these names probably because they're hard to say. But there's a woman named Kate, Caitlin Carrico. And she was in the 1990s. She was at the University of Pennsylvania. And she was trying to do this. She was trying to put messenger RNA into a cell and she was having trouble getting it in there. And it was so fragile, as you said, it couldn't get in there make it function right. Um, and ultimately her funding started to dry up because they weren't seeing any progress with this. And she got demoted at the university. So she was like on a full professor tenureship. And then they were like, your research isn't producing anything. So you're, you're not doing that anymore. But she, most people at that point would have hung up that research and just been like, I'm moving on to something else. But she, she didn't, she pressed on. She really believed in this messenger RNA thing. And she teamed up with another scientist named Drew Weissman, who's an immunologist from Boston University. And they kept persisting at this technology. And, and ultimately in 2005, they got it to work. They got their messenger RNA into a cell. And it was kind of, um, at the time, academic backwater. Like people weren't really talking about this research and they weren't you know, super excited about it, except for two people in particular. The first person, his name's Derek Rossi. And what's interesting about him, he was a postdoc at Stanford. He read the paper about the messenger RNA and he thought it was really cool. So when he got his own lab at Harvard, he decided that he wanted to use messenger RNA to make stem cells. Stem cells are really hard to come by for researchers. And so he figured he could make a cell, give it the programming and turn it into a stem cell. And so he started to work on this project using the technology that um, Carrico had, had developed. And he ultimately got it to work. And so he was amazed by the fact that he could make a stem cell. And he went to a venture capitalist firm who also had medical scientists in it. And he presented this information and saying, hey, I think I have a really good idea here. This is gonna make some money. And they said, absolutely, you are blowing our mind right now. And they started a company and it's called Moderna. That's where the company came from. And it, the name of the company even is cool because if you look at Moderna, it's mod modified RNA. That's what the name is. So they actually put what they do. Messenger RNA is in their name essentially. So I thought that was pretty cool. And they're, you know, we're a big company, venture capitalists threw a lot of cash in there because what they realized is that this doesn't just work for stem cells. This could work for vaccines and this could work for other proteins that you might need to make in other disease process. So they really had this big vision that they could, you know, blow this up into a huge money-making company. And they continued to work research, you know, on this messenger RNA. I told you, I know this is like a long-winded thing, but I found it really interesting. The second person who found this really interesting in 2005 were two scientists and his name's Ugar Sahin and his wife, Aslam Tarichi. So these two started 
BioNTech. I don't even know how to say that company's name. So they started a separate company that was doing messenger RNA research and they continued to develop. They were much more academic. They're kind of a quiet company. He's still like an academia guy. He doesn't drive a car. He just rides his bike, does research. And ultimately in January, when the Chinese scientists released the DNA of COVID-19, these two companies were poised and ready to go. They had the mechanism to deliver a messenger RNA and they were given the, the DNA information, which you make the messenger RNA from. And so they were able to quickly start to apply this to their vaccines. And, and again, that shows you that really this vaccine's in development from 1995 till now. And these two companies were just very well poised when a pandemic happened because they do messenger RNA and they had it kind of in their in their genetics to do vaccines, they were ready to go. To be alive in this day and age is amazing. To be able to witness this, to be able to witness like commercial flights to space and this, it's making me feel like I am questioning what I've been doing the last 20 years of my life. The, the other funny thing about this is it's there's a, a fair amount of drama around this, as you could suspect. There's probably like a, a mini series at some point by Netflix because the guy, Derek Rossi, he, um, and ended up leaving the company because he had a falling out with the venture capitalist people because they said he didn't realize, you know, all that they could make with this. So there's a lot of drama and they were all mad at each other. But um, the BioNTech company, they um, got bought by Pfizer fairly recently. So after they were developing this vaccine, then Pfizer said, hey, they already do this technology. We're going to buy them. A super interesting story. The other thing that it makes me think of is just how this, technology, I mean, not only in the United States, but worldwide, it's been, you know, there's been a lot of work on this. Um, there's great review articles in the, in, in the Journal of Nature um, that kind of these huge charts of all the different ways that we are trying to utilize this technology, both for infectious diseases and cancer. Um, some of the infectious diseases include something that's near and dear to my heart. A ongoing epidemic, which is the HIV epidemic, to obviously someday, hopefully, cure HIV um, using this as a more therapeutic option versus a preventative option. I think that you know this technology is is really uh, novel. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I even when I was researching this, I found this is just a side point which I won't go into deeply. But um, they're even concerned that this could be used, you know, for for things that maybe aren't even ideal or ethical. For example, you know, you could use this technology to help make a super soldier, meaning you could make them create proteins that make them not be afraid or not sleep or have more testosterone or all of these things that you might want a super soldier to have. Um, anyway, that was a side note, but it's interesting because you could just com continually expand what this kind of technology could do. I think, um, so, okay. yeah, I mean, to help not care people about that. I think those all of those things you described are a multi-territorial process that would take more than one single uh, protein change, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. So um, that is an interesting idea, but yeah, I'm not um, trying to scare people you know. <laughs> on the podcast. I, I, I just read it, you know, on the internet. So when you read it on the internet, it means it's happening. And then kind of fantasize about becoming yeah. a super soldier <laughs> a yourself, bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Let's see what's happening here. <laughs> so let, um, let's get back to the vaccine here. Let, so I'll redirect us. So how good is this vaccine? How good is this vaccine compared to other vaccines that we have? Well, I, I it really is 
absolutely mind-blowing how much of a home run these two vaccine, large vaccine trials have been, um, showing very similar efficacy of basically both studies showing around 95% efficacy for preventing symptomatic COVID-19. And this remarkably in these studies, they really took focus at looking across racial, ethnic, sex, uh, and age groups. Um, and it's efficacious across the board. And this is like, a, you know, a multi, you know, national study. So lots of different racial and ethnic groups were included. Um, and the vaccine performs well across all of these groups. And this is something really unique to the study because prior studies have sometimes ignored these groups. The other thing that was really included is people with some medical problems, uh, heart disease, diabetes, individuals with well-controlled HIV were included. So it's a really robust study and um, it great. This, this efficacy greatly exceeds the FDA threshold, which is set at 50%. This vaccine greatly exceeds the performance of an influenza vaccination, which sits around 50-ish percent annually, sometimes higher. The uh, MMR vaccine is a very high-performing uh, vaccine in a similar level of efficacy. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that that we're not going to get into here. But needless to say, 95% is awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Um so I've had people ask me, once you get the vaccine, can you still spread the virus? Are you able to spread the virus if like you're exposed you're to somebody? you and you can still, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, I think that's a very profound question. And I really appreciate people asking that because really they're thinking about others. And I think that's, that's great. The answer to that is, unfortunately, I, I'm uncertain about that question. I would say two pieces is Moderna is going to have some additional information about that um, that is going to be released. Uh, the way that they set up their trial, they looked at that question a little bit more. Pfizer did not evaluate that specifically. So what they were doing in the uh, Pfizer trial is if you became symptomatic or had symptoms consistent with COVID-19, you were tested. So they weren't testing people at random or on a scheduled basis to see if they had the disease and then testing people around them to show whether or not they were transmitting it. But one can make potential educated guesses that probably not. Um, if people are getting infected, even if they're symptomatic, they may be less likely to transmit um, this virus. And the rumor is, is that Moderna has some data suggesting that. But at the same time, this is one of the reasons that we're saying just set your mind, at least for the good part of 2021, we're still going to be masking until we really can get uptake to a level of uh, herd immunity. So just once again, best practice would be if you get the vaccine, still take all the, all the current precautions. That's right. Okay. I, I think there may be some situations going forward where like, you know, I don't know if they're going to be like, show me your vaccine card for entry 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Uh, for for example, like with airplane air travel, I, I don't know. Seems like there's some complexities to that, but I think that the vaccine, once we are able to distribute it to a large group, is going to make a huge impact. Yeah. Maybe there's like a vaccine bracelet you get so then you can see who you can hug and who you can't hug. <laughs> right? Or Run we could tattoo bracelets. people. Yeah. That's a oh, that's getting sketchy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True, right? I just want to know who I can hug again one day. What thinking of the vaccine, obviously everyone is afraid of, you know, what are, what are side effects from this vaccine and what, what can we have? What do we have to worry about with that? So the side effects are, I mean, they're, they're, they're very similar to other vaccines. So there may be, you know, I'm not sure exactly the average age of the group that is going to be listening to the podcast, um, but we would compare it to kind of two vaccines. One, Shrenric, uh, which is the vaccine to prevent shingles versus this flu vaccination. And the most common side effect for all of these vaccines, including the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccination, is local pain at the site of injection. I mean, this is expected. I mean, we just injected something that we want your body to respond to. Your immune system uh, is, is going to respond to whatever product. It could be, you know, this inactivated virus or pieces of protein. Um, we want your body to re- react to it. So I... Like this side effect is positive. Like, yay, my immune system is seeing this and forming an immune response to protect me from this infectious diseases. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah, I mean, Moderna's local pain is like in the low 90s, local pain reaction. Pfizer is in the low 80s. This is compared to Shrenrix, which is 78%. Uh, Flu is 45%, a little bit less but, you know, kind of corresponding to its less performance. I think that it's really interesting with what you said, and that's kind of how I think about it, is that you almost want to have this little reaction because it it does mean that my immune system is mounting a response. And every year when I get the flu shot, I actually feel the flu shot effects, meaning, you know, people say, oh, you're just placebo or whatever, but I don't feel great, you know, after I received the flu shot. And I got this vaccine on Tuesday and the next day, you know, I felt a little malaise. It's kind of like a little hangover feeling. Um, and I did have soreness in my arm, but the day after that, it was it was totally gone. Like I felt fine. And so it was pretty minimal. And I think, I like to think about it that my immune system triggered, you know, it did something because I got a vaccine. And just, I, I, I'm glad that you brought up placebo because people in the placebo group also have these symptoms. I mean, the people in the placebo group, up to 30% felt fatigue after they got their injection and they just got failing. Hmm. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so That's funny. Um, I think there is somewhat of a uh, effect of just knowing that you're getting an injection, but these are really transient side effects. I mean, people did describe some low-grade fevers, myalgias, headaches. But th- these are transient. One thing to consider is, you know, getting your vaccine on a day that you're not working the, the next day so that you don't have to worry about whether you're feeling up for doing um, your job. Yeah, and we talk, but, we talk about that with, you know, EMS and fire departments that for the most part, you know, the plan will be that they'll get their shot going off shift, or the vaccine at going off shift, as opposed to, you know, right when they came on shift. Um, and then that gives them some leeway if they do have some symptoms. 
The other thing is people reported um, on the side of injections that their lymph nodes got a little bit enlarged. Again, this is really just expected reactions. I mean, this, this is where the, a lot of your immune system lives in your lymph nodes. This doesn't seem really unexpected. Um, in both studies, there were a few cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine group compared to the placebo group. The placebo group had no cases. Really, at this stage, it's unclear whether this is related. It's at an extremely low level, and it is still even at a level that one expects it in just the general population. Um, and some of these individuals had other risk factors for developing Bell's palsy. So it's something that we have to continue to monitor. And I really encourage everybody out there to sign up for this new method for monitoring safety, which is called V-Safe. And when you get your vaccine, they'll give you the paperwork on how to sign. This is an active monitoring system. So once you sign up every day for a couple of weeks, it's going to ask you how you feel. And if you say something concerning, somebody from the CDC could contact you to learn more about it. This is really trying to show the safety, layers of safety that are being put in place for this. But at the same time, these vaccines have been shown to be safe for three months. Um, that's what was required by the FDA. And the majority of vaccine uh, severe complications develop within the first six weeks. So we're not breaking any rules or changing any rules. I mean, this is these vaccines have followed kind of the standard for what we have, even for other therapeutics or cancer therapeutics that come out. You yeah, could, I think you I, know, there's lots of different side effects that can develop. I've read somewhere, you know, obviously reading about the studies and the Pfizer study, they, you know, gave the vaccine to about 20,000 people and 20,000 placebo. And that's actually a pretty good hearty number of, you know, people to give this to for, from a research standpoint. I'm not sure, uh, Amy, maybe you know that how many the Moderna gave in their test run. So the Moderna study uh, looked at almost 14,000 people in the vaccine group and 14,000 in the placebo group. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, lots of numbers again. The other piece about safety is the standard reporting system is still in place, um, which is called the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This is a, it's not an active uh, process. So if you thought you had a side effect, both as an individual or a provider, both, both people could report to this vaccine adverse uh, reporting system. Is this safety monitoring system, the V-Safe, the, the ongoing app, is that given to everybody who gets a shot or is it just certain clinics are giving that out? Everybody that gets a shot can sign up. Great, that's a great way to collect a ton of data. Yeah, it's awesome. So Amy, who should get this vaccine? So almost everybody should get the vaccine is, is the, the punchline here. And I'll clarify that just a little bit more. It has been studied in individuals over 16 years old, um, and studies uh, are ongoing in younger populations. So um, you do have to be 16. Individuals who have underlying medical conditions get the vaccine. If you had prior infection due to COVID-19, 
um, you should you can get the vaccine any time after you're out of your isolation period and feel well. The CDC has uh, put out specific guidance that you can wait 90 days because we think people have some protection from natural infection for about 90 days. Individuals who have HIV, um, as I mentioned, um, they have been studied in these two trials. Um, they should get um, the vaccine. Other immune-compromising conditions, whether it's immunosuppressive therapy, that was less studied, um, and we predict people might not have as good of a response, but there's nothing to tell us physiologically that they're going to have different side effects, um, and they are allowed to get this vaccine even though there is less data. This is a similar uh, lean that they're giving to pregnancy. So pregnancy hasn't been studied well, but we think that you have to consider a variety of things uh, when you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or, or contemplating pregnancy. And these things uh, include what's the level of uh, infection in your area of COVID-19, what's your personal risk for contracting COVID-19. And so here we're talking to people that are uh, healthcare workers. So, you know, we're, we're all at a greater risk. Pregnancy, uh, women that do get infected with COVID-19 who are pregnant have worse or more severe illness. So that's something to consider. The lack of data, obviously something, you know, in the plus minus uh, categories. But importantly, as we've already stated, this is not a live virus and cannot cause disease. So women that are unsure um, can go to I mean, major sites such as uh, the organizations for um, obstetrics and maternal fetal medicine have um, made statements kind of leaning towards women getting vaccination if they weigh all of these things and they want to get vaccinated. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's, we as a group, we're really nervous about women who are pregnant getting excluded and we're happy that they have the choice to get the vaccine um, in our infectious disease group. So Amy, we have, you know, I got the Pfizer vaccine, which I get the first dose of that vaccine. Uh, and then 21 days later, I get a second dose. If you got the Moderna vaccine or you get the Moderna vaccine, you're going to get your injection. And then 28 days later, you're going to get your second dose. Some people have asked me, how tight is that window? Is it have to be exactly 21 days or 28 days or can it have some variance? Um, so there is some variance allowed. The ACIP um, has allowed for you to get it four days prior to the 21 day mark. From a infectious disease physician standpoint um, and developing policy for a specific hospital, I really think that four days on either side of those numbers makes physio is physiologically fine. And if it ends up being a little bit longer, we would still give people the vaccine. We're not going to give people a third dose of the vaccine right now. Obviously, it's in short supply. Um, but I think that the effectiveness by a couple days isn't going to be a great impact. But we all want to try to plan it to be as close to the number as we can. Yeah. Amy, I totally appreciate all this information that you've given us. I found it super interesting. Um, 
Could you give us just before we finish up here, just give me some punchlines, some, some truths that you want people to take home from this talk? Well, I would love to. Um, and these are really based off of the things that people ask me every day. Um, and these include that these vaccines are not going to give you COVID-19. They're not going to cause you to test positive um, on any of the viral tests. That's testing for the genetic material in your nose of the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. People who have gotten sick with COVID-19 will still benefit from getting this vaccine. We think that based on this immunologic data that they've gathered from these studies, that people are going to have longer lasting immunity to COVID-19, and that's going to benefit your health. And as we've already alluded to, if you get the COVID-19 vaccine, it's going to prevent you from getting sick from COVID-19. Waiting for natural infection is not safe. There's no way to know how your body is going to react to infection. And it probably prevents spreading of infection, too, as, as we already kind of discussed. Um, and the research about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine is good. Um, and we're going to keep monitoring it. And that is, is a critical point. But it is safe enough for you to get it now. Yeah, that, um, and I really, I hope that I've convinced you of that. I totally appreciate all the information. And, I, you know, I keep telling people that, you know, it sucks that we're living in a pandemic, right? It's, it, I don't choose to live in a pandemic. It just happened. My preference would be great. I would love that we don't have vaccines or pandemic. But if we are in a pandemic... The vaccine is an amazing tool that we have now to help us. And so absolutely, I got, you know, I raised my hand to get the vaccine as soon as possible. And I recommend everyone else get the vaccine as well. We have to stop the 15 747s falling out of our sky every day and the death. Absolutely. Um, and um, it, it just, it's something we all have to do. We have to, I think, we all think about things from our individual health and, and these will help our individual health, but also it will help us as a nation to, to stop these unnecessary deaths that are happening. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's twofold, right? We're taking it for our own protection and we're doing it altruistically to help everybody else as well. If we all do this together, you know, we can save a lot of 747s from crashing. Amy, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I totally appreciate it. I wish we could have done it in person and not on the phone. Uh, it's always so much easier to do it in person, but I appreciate your time and, and being on the call with us. Well, thanks for asking me and um, I, I appreciate the invitation. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to check out our website, you can go to 300training.com. That's the number three and then hundred is spelled out. So 300training.com. You can get CE credits for the podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Shannon Sovendahl and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.